Welcome to Scope It Out. In this edition, Dr. Smith will be speaking with Dr. David Conley on his article, Utilization of a Novel Interactive Mobile Health Platform to Evaluate Functional Outcomes and Pain Following Septoplasty and Functional Endoscopic Sinus Surgery. This edition of Scope It Out is made possible by support from Aranex, makers of the Clarifix cryotherapy device. A breakthrough solution for chronic rhinitis patients, Clarifix offers ENT physicians an advanced, minimally invasive approach to effectively treat patients suffering from chronic rhinitis. Visit us at www.clarifix.com. That's www.clarifix.com. Hello and welcome to Scope It Out, the podcast of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology. I'm your host, Dr. Tim Smith, and today I'm very happy to be joined by David Conley from Chicago. We will be discussing his article, which is currently available online and is entitled Utilization of a Novel Interactive Mobile Health Platform to Evaluate Functional Outcomes and Pain following septoplasty and functional endoscopic sinus surgery. David, welcome to the podcast. Tim, thanks for having me. Absolutely. It's great to have you as a guest. You're one of my favorite panelists when I see you at national meetings. I always appreciate your thoughtful commentary, and I'm looking forward to more of that today. Your study, I think, is very timely, and I'm frankly surprised there hasn't been more work done in this realm, especially given the push for measuring outcomes and quality, not just in the research setting, but also in other aspects of results reporting and quality improvement efforts. This topic, I think, now touches on something that all practitioners are beginning to relate to, even if they haven't necessarily had an interest in gathering, you know, research data in this way. I think what you used here, the best I can tell, is a mobile app that can be downloaded on to a mobile device and used in a fairly convenient fashion, collect information about the patient and their treatment course and, you know, their impressions of their recovery, in this case from various types of surgery. So, Maybe first just tell us how this works so that the listeners can understand what you utilized here. Well, you're right, Tim. This is um, an attempt to kind of streamline interaction with patient and data collection. The device itself is uh, commercially available, and this is not so much about the particular device, but the effect of using a mobile health platform for collecting data. Now, I think most of us who do research all the time employ research coordinators, and we have patients fill out forms. We may even have them fill out electronic forms. But most of us are very challenged to get people to respond to this because they're busy. And who wants to log in or fill out a piece of paper or whatever? So we have response rates even when we're very highly engaged with our research uh, patients in the 30, 40, 50, 60, at best 70% range. And it takes a lot of human time and and effort to to collect that. So we thought we would look at this mobile data platform and see if it would help. Now, we'll talk about what we got out of it, but the interesting thing is that using an interactive 
health platform like this change the whole game? First of all, this is a program that people sign up for. It's on their computer, but really ends up on their cell phones. It's HIPAA compliant. It's encrypted. But it is more than just answering questions like what we've outlined here in our research. It interacts with the patient. So preoperatively, it reminds people to do their health screening, to stop taking aspirin if that's important. Postoperatively, it, you build in protocols where it prompts people routinely after surgery, and it comes through on the phone like, hello, this is Dr. Conley. How are you doing today? And do you have any concerns? And maybe are you starting your postoperative saline rinses? And so the patients are now engaged with this device, and we thought that more than just using it as a very convenient interface for communicating with our patients perioperatively, we thought we would try to see if we could also collect information like this because I found that there was a bit of a void in terms of being able to counsel patients on what to expect postoperatively. And that's where this starts to provide some of that information. I noticed that you have no funding sources for this study, and the application is called a Health Loop, all one word, That's Health correct. Loop. That's correct. How did you get a hold of this, and are there any disclosures that the listeners should be aware of? Right. So I have no financial disclosures or consultancy with this company. You're accurate to ask, well, then how did we get to use it, because we're in an academic institution and unlikely to budget for this type of uh, application. Our hospital at Northwestern, through an innovations committee, decided to determine if this would be a useful device for communications with patients perioperatively. So we signed up for that, and then we wrote our protocols, and then we included in our protocols for what's messaged routinely these standard questions that we'll go over. How did you get patients to download the app? I mean, it looks like you had a – well, let's see. You you talk about 249 of the 288 patients who enrolled, so about 87% of the patients engaged with the application to some degree. Of those 288 patients who initially enrolled, are those people who downloaded the app? I guess I'm wondering how many actually first just were willing to download an app and, and engage in this process. Right. So at the time of scheduling surgery, one of our two coordinators would recommend that the patient enroll in this application for messaging. I would say nearly 90% of people agreed to do it. Yeah. And of those, we have about 87% that engaged with the application. Okay. Uh, initially, I had all kinds of preconceived ideas, like this will only be for young people mm -hmm. or tech-savvy people. But actually, other data shows that even the elderly are in some ways the more likely ones to, to use this. Right. And outside of this particular study, that level of active engagement with the patient really improves their postoperative experience. So instead of having to call in and leave a message with the nurse and someone get a hold of whatever, they just simply text in, hey, I'm not sure if this is okay. And we on our end with a computer face or even on my end with the app on my phone can simply text in a response. So oh, that's really concerning. You should call us or come in or this is completely normal. And so the, the device itself cuts down a lot of layers that are often prohibitive 
for quick and you know easy communications. And I was also a little worried that it might be abused by some patients, but really people are very respective of our time and they ask questions that were generally pretty quick and easy to respond to without all of the telephone tag and all of that. So that's how the company, I think, puts their device out there for you yeah. as a practitioner. But we were interested in rolling into the protocols also, you know, how are you doing? Are you having pain? How bad is it? What's your quality of life through a couple measures? And just see if this would produce some data on our particular practice without yeah. having to have study coordinators and a lot of separate data collection. As the surgeon, did you communicate with the patient about their recovery through this app on an individualized basis? Meaning, could they ask you a question through this app and either you or someone who you've delegated to, you know, respond to these types of questions would answer them through this app? Yeah. I mean, I would be traveling and standing in line at an airport and have a patient ask me if something was okay. And most of the time I could, with a few words in a text, just reassure them and the whole communication is completed. So we have our usual support staff in our office monitoring this interface, but if it bumps up to me for something critical or whatever, I could communicate as well. But I think it's not to be forgotten that that's not how it really worked. Most of what was happening were pre-written protocols. So we put into it that automatically at day one, the patient would get a text from Dr. Conley saying, hi, this is Dr. Conley, checking in to see how you're doing. Is your pain reasonably controlled? Have you started your saline irrigations? And the patient got that, of course, through Hmm. protocol that I approved routinely. But I didn't have to generate 99% of the part of the communication that went out to the patient. Now, what this does is it creates a line of communication that if the patient has a concern or if one of those indicators comes back at a concerning level, then we could maybe say, hey, look, this person's having pain out of control or bleeding out of the ordinary. You can set thresholds where you'll be notified of things even if the patient isn't actively trying to reach you. So so you're notified with that notification. What I'm sensing is a question that would come up from myself and and the listeners about medical legal implications of managing patients in this way. So when a patient has too much bleeding and through the app they're trying to communicate that they're concerned about their level of bleeding, there's someone on the other side who is engaged with them even if you're on the airplane, you know, over the Pacific Ocean? So we put a couple parameters on this particular trial. First, it was an 8 to 5 use, and people were informed that if they had problems outside of the normal working hours or weekend, they need to call the phone line and get a hold of a live person. So that was number one. Only seldomly did people try to contact us through the app outside of those times, and when they did, Since there was no support staff, you know, outside of 8 to 5, it would bump up to my phone. And when those occasionally occurred, I was quite happy just to close the loop and say, no, you're fine. You know, this is not a concern, which was how most of those played out. The other part of this that's kind of interesting, and I don't want to get too much into the particular app and its own business plan, but... These uh, messages can be rolled right into uh, many of the medical records. 
Yeah, I so wondered instead about of that. A, and so instead of like an Epic MyChart message, mm -hmm. well, this can come through Epic as a MyChart type of message and be right. integrated into your health record. And so it just creates another access besides the phone or MyChart with Epic or walking into the office, you know, however people yeah. try to get a hold of us, right? Another yeah. route into uh, your normal messaging system. So those are all great questions, and, I, you know, I, I don't want to focus too much on this particular application, but we can talk about what we found out and why we were able to collect data with such granularity over time and, and make some easy comparisons without setting up much more than just a protocol to ask the questions. You measured some outcomes, some interesting outcomes, some quality of life type outcomes, patient reported outcome measure outcomes that most of us are familiar with from the research literature. And then you also looked at pain on a visual analog scale during the first couple of weeks after surgery. And I was just thinking, envisioning a patient recording their level of pain on post-operative day two. And I was envisioning once they record their level of pain, a pop-up might come up that shows the average level of pain experienced by a larger group of patients to put their pain in perspective. Sometimes patients wonder, well, how am I doing relative to what a typical patient would experience? And so you, I can see all kinds of ways to interact with patients and help them through a post-operative period with an application like this. Yeah, no, I think you're right, Tim. This opens up a whole other level of better communications. I've often been a little bit disturbed about how little information yeah. I can give people about what to expect. And if you're facing a decision such as a major health event such as surgery, you know, I find it disturbing that I can't really tell people, well, about when will you really be go able to go back to work? Or how much pain am I going to have and how long might it last? And to your earlier comments, those are going to be very important parameters to pin down as we try to approach pain control in a safe way and, you know, certainly the concerns about the opioid crisis and overprescribing right. and overtreating. So this gave us granular data that I'm, I'm really not sure that we have too many other ways through the literature. And we also look when people kind of go back to work, which was very interesting. Yeah, yeah. Before we get into the some of the specific outcomes, I especially want to talk to you about the pain after surgery and how that assisted patients and you and understanding that. But did you have medical legal concerns going into this, number one? And number two, did any medical legal concerns arise as a result of using this app? You know, with your experience with it, did you did something happen where you said, hmm, that could be a problem? No, I mean, we really weren't driven to this by any desperation. But I looked at this as an opportunity to have a better experience with patients. You know, it's it's a long way we are from, you know, a doctor in a small town and you call the doctor or the nurse and questions yeah. are answered. I mean, we're in big, complicated health systems now. Yeah. And I think that, you know, as we've gotten into bigger, more complex health systems, patients sometimes are left with a sense that, you know, if they have an issue, who do they call? And, you know, I have colleagues who try to give out a cell phone 
mm-hmm. or a special cell phone. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, at this point, you know, we're all aware that those types of communications aren't particularly HIPAA compliant. Right. And so you're going to see now a whole raft of products that are electronic platforms to allow for communications and now not only between patients and the doctor but between doctors because do you really have a good two-way conversation with a pager you know no it doesn't really work and yet do you really have time to get someone on a telephone not necessarily easy either so so we didn't have any particularly dire medical legal concerns about this this we did make sure and this was part of a very well-established device that this was HIPAA compliant with the appropriate encoding. And one of the things that's interesting about this device, again, is that people could send me photos. So I would have a patient who would text me on day five and say, Dr. Conley, I'm concerned that my splints have fallen out, and would send a picture of a little bit of mucoid secretion, and I would be able to immediately say, no worries, they're stitched in. Those are yep. typical secretions, and immediately that patient is reassured, very happy with the interaction, and honestly, I don't know how you do that in a HIPAA-compliant fashion without ha- telling the patient, well, if you're really concerned, right, you have right. to come, come in to and the take ER. a look, which is, and, and going to the ER is a, a very a disaster, a very big step, right, sure. and, yet, and yet that's a common line, and I think that this is, well, this is a HIPAA-compliant secure messaging platform. It's encrypted appropriately. And so we didn't really have any concerns about increasing the quality of our communications. And I think that's where it sounded like in your question you were worried that we might be opening up medical legal liability. I have a feeling. I have a different feeling about that. I feel that the better the communications, the much less likely you're going to have legal issues arise because yeah. you'll recognize problems. You'll have people who are who are comfortable with your attentiveness. And honestly, it didn't take any more attentiveness because instead of having a series of triage phone calls and tracking down a doctor and can you call this person, I mean, it just happened immediately. So the same amount of work for me was done. It was just streamlined. So, yeah. yeah, I don't know if you have a specific question about the medical No, it's, aspect, it was but, more just I sense yeah. when we start having these conversations about major shifts in the way we communicate with patients, I always feel like there's this sense that, well, medical legally, that might create a problem, you know, and, and it prevents us oftentimes from making progress. And my hunch is what you learned, and that is that, Actually, probably the opposite is true, that uh, this actually gives us a better way to be connected to our patients without it being overly burdensome, as, as you have suggested. I know plenty of colleagues who have given out their cell numbers. I see that done routinely with healthcare providers in this day and age, and I've not taken that step as a healthcare provider. Somehow that just doesn't seem the way to do this. It it feels like it needs to be handled through an application like this where there are certain circumstances that are foreseen and issues that can be managed and and dealt with. And I'm also convinced, David, it sounds like you are too, that this is the future. Not only, as you said, communications with our patients, but also 
communications with other health care providers, I'm still astonished to walk through the hospital today and see the vast majority of us walking around with a pager on our hip that's not all that much different from the pager I walked around with during my surgical internship, you know, 25 years ago. I, it, yeah. it, to me, it is amazing that we are still in that realm. But to your point, I think if, if people are going to look at these digital platforms, they should make sure that not only are they HIPAA-compliant, encrypted, and safe, but this one in particular has all kinds of thresholds. So if a person responds about how they're doing and it's okay, it's green. If it's yeah. yellow, someone needs to look at it that day. If it's red, yeah. that becomes like any other lab result where it's a critical value. And then if the person monitoring the interface doesn't answer that in a certain amount of time, it's bumped up to another person, which may be another layer, or it may be the physician. So I think that I was somewhat reassured with this particular platform because it had those kinds of safety things into it. You are right. You would hate to have a person text back, I've lost a liter of blood, <laughs> and then have that on Friday at noon and have someone look at it Monday morning, right, and then realize right. that there had been no closed loop to that. We also were very careful to tell people that they had emergencies where it was outside the normal hours that they yeah. must call, that this could not be yeah. relied upon. But on the other side, you know, there are some physicians who this just may not fit their practice and their type of practice. And we have, you know, in our group, there were some of us who were very ready to try all this and adopt it and others who just didn't. And there were other departments, such as not ENT, who decided they only wanted the one-way messaging, such as all of the information going out, but they did not want the patient to have a mechanism to contact them back, so that was turned off. So I think different types of practice, different practice styles will find what works for them, but as far as I'm concerned, this is a huge step in the right direction for better patient communications. And again, my finding was that it was rarely did we sense it was overused by patients, like, you yeah. know, this is someone who wants to have long conversations or right. doesn't, you know, can't. Right. It just really didn't happen that way, which yeah. which kind of surprised me, yeah. but, but it was a pleasant surprise. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. So tell us a little bit about what you learned. I guess the outcome that I'm most interested in, given your follow-up range, was what you learned about pain during the post-operative period and how that might change your, your management moving forward. Right. Well, we ask about pain every other day for two weeks postoperatively because we want to know, you know, what happened to people over the week or two postoperatively. We ask about it in two ways. One is we had a visual analog scale. Now, it was really a visual digital scale, <laughs> so I didn't want to be goofy and coin the term VDS. Because uh, it wasn't You analog. just did. You yeah, just was, did. From this zero, point forward. One, two, three. Yeah, okay. Let's just call it but, the Conley VDS. No. No, take my name off it. Just the visual scale, uh, zero through ten. And based on some other studies and sense of where pain was, we considered that people were relatively pain-free when they were four or less on that scale of ten. And so using that criteria, we looked at septoplasty alone, sinus surgery, a third group, which was sinus surgery and a septoplasty, 
and a fourth group, which was sinus surgery and some type of extensive bony drilling, such as in a draft three or a mega antrostomy. Right. And so of those four groups, surprisingly, they were pretty much the same. There's not a lot of difference over the 14 days. Also, surprisingly, even on day two, about somewhere between 40 and 50% of those patients were under that threshold of four. And the other thing we found was that by day eight, 80% of our patients were in that zero to four range out of 10. Right. So I think we all talk to our patients after surgery. We talk to them at various times, depending on how often we have them come back. But it was helpful for me to see this curvature, because now I guess I could say to most people that half of our patients have very minimal pain after surgery, even at day two, right? Yeah, after certainly after 48 hours. So. And that a week, 80% of our patients yeah. have very minimal pain. And that yeah. that's something that with this level of granularity, we didn't ask every day. We yeah. didn't want to overtax people's thumbs yeah. uh, on the digital platform. Yeah. But, but with an engagement rate upwards of 87%, I think right. you, and I'd be interested in your opinion of this, yeah. but... I think that helps make us more comfortable that the people who don't answer these kinds of questions in conventional methods for studies aren't throwing a lot of, we're not getting a lot of bias by people who are extremely painful being the ones who respond or the ones who aren't having any pain being the ones who do or don't respond. I mean, this is a large enough response rate that I think with 200 patients, you can probably start to counsel people about what kind of pain and how long. Now, of course, we all know as a good surgeon, that comes with a caveat. You must tell people everyone is different, and some people have more pain, and it lasts longer. Right. But the other thing that's interesting about this is there was really not much difference between these procedures. I had always thought that septoplasty hurt a lot more than an ethmoidectomy. And and we have some numbers on that as well, where we looked at the average pain score by day and the average time to pain-free or that 0.4 or less for septoplasty was three and a half days or sinus surgery was 4.4 days. That did not become significantly different. And even if it were, what's the difference between 3.6 and 4.4 in terms of days, right? It's about four days. (laughs) Right. It's about the same. When you added in the the drilled patients, they went out to about 4.8. Now, I think we all know that about a number of our patients with a draft drill out have some bony discomfort in the forehead that can last longer than other. But then half, oh, I'm just guessing, a certain percentage of those don't. And sure enough, these patients were pretty much in the same range. I mean, I have to say, in my clinical experience, not having measured it as carefully as you have, I I would have guessed that the results would be pretty similar among those various procedures. Now, there's one article in IFAR from Adam DeConde from UCSD about low throat, and I forget if that was looking at pain or quality of life measures postoperatively, but he was able to discriminate a higher level of, I guess, suffering, I'll call it generally speaking, because I'm not sure exactly which outcome he looked at offhand, but 
in patients who underwent modified Lothrop or extensive drilling in the frontal relative to patients who did not have that. But I have to say, in my clinical experience, it's based on factors that are beyond the surgical instrumentation of the patient. It usually is more related to, you know, every, as you said, every individual patient has a different pain threshold, a different experience with pain, and a different experience with the pain medication. Those are the factors that seem to predominate the determination as to how much pain the patient's going to have postoperatively. It kind of sounds like I'm blaming the patient here for surgical pain, and I certainly don't intend to do that. It's just been my experience that it's factors beyond our surgical procedure that really determine that. Yeah, and along those same lines, when you start to get into kind of the psychology of pain and, and what this really means, uh, we used another instrument called the Promise Pain Interference Short Form. Right. And the Promise instruments are patient-reported outcome measurement information system surveys. And these don't ask, like on an analog scale, are you having pain and how much. These ask questions about how much your life is interfered with. And in the pain section of the Promise questionnaire, how much is it interfered with as related to pain? It's not a measurement of pain, but rather a measurement of of how much this impacts y- your quality of life, right? right and what you right, can do. Right, right. And 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 when we use the promise form here at baseline in a two weeks and three months, we compared people who had just a septoplasty or sinus surgery and septoplasty. And as you can imagine, the promise score was lower pre-op for people who are just having septoplasty than people who are having sinus surgery and septoplasty. Right. We also found that at two weeks, both of those categories had increased a bit. Two weeks after septoplasty, your life is interfered with a bit. Yeah, yeah. And it also was interfered a bit by sinus surgery as well. But what we found is that at three months, they had both gone down to levels lower than pre-op, but much, much more reduction for the sinus patients. Right. So that kind of makes sense because if you imagine that people are getting sinus surgery of an overall larger burden of disease and problem, they have more room for improvement along that in terms of how it interferes with their daily life as opposed to someone who just has blocked nose, stuffy nose, mechanical septoplasty problems. And I'm revealing a lot of my biases there (laughs) in terms of what parts of the nose may cause what kinds of symptoms. And I will admit that I don't think we really have all of that figured out. I was going to say I was interested in the way you guys or the way you prescribe, you and your co-investigators prescribe postoperative pain management. You describe between 24 and 30 tablets of acetaminophen hydrocodone, 5 milligrams, 325. And to me, that seemed to be a type of prescription I would have given in years past. But more recently, I seem to have really tightened that up. Have you, I know this is getting off the direct topic of your paper, but can you tell me a little bit about how you control pain postoperatively? Well, I think there's a lot of room for improvement. I think that in sometimes in larger uh, healthcare systems like ours, we have probably erred on the side of more pain pills available to the patient than maybe were needed. But I have to admit that in light of this data, 
which we did not have when we did the study. Yeah. I agree. And and I think that if you're a very astute clinician, Tim, you've probably been able to kind of discern this over time, and then you may have dropped down your prescribing. But I have to admit that until I kind of see the data and have more information, when I see my patient at a week post-op and then another four weeks after that, I really am not getting the kind of information to sort out how much pain meds, how many pain meds yeah. you need or, or whatever. Now, there is one study, I wish I could remember the quote we had used, but that showed the average sinus patient uses about five of those pills. Yeah, that was uh, Becker and, and Becker's study, right. and you quoted right. in here. And, right. And, you know, I think that that study and a couple of others have really influenced, I, I wasn't, I'm sorry, David, but I wasn't clever enough to discern all of this. What's <laughs> happened is my less, senior, I'll call, they're not junior by any means, my less senior colleagues have taken a lot of interest in this topic and they've changed the way I've prescribed. I think you and I lived through pain as the fourth vital sign (laughs) and that era where it almost felt like we were being prosecuted for not taking patient pain seriously. Do you remember those days? We were, Tim. We would come in 15 years ago to the hospital and we would get citations if we had not rounded and scored the pain and dealt with it. And I had to write an attestation in my daily note that I had sufficiently addressed the patient's pain needs. Well, nothing with that should change except that along with that came this enormous pressure to prescribe perhaps more narcotics narcotic. in the past than, than, right. than, than we I even wanted right. to. Yeah. I can't say that our behavior in the last five years is all due to that. I think in, in some larger healthcare systems, there's just a concern that people don't end up on the weekend in a right. lot of pain, right. can't get it done, can't get a prescription. And what's what's helped with that recently is we now have, I don't know if it's two or three-factor verification, and we have apps now that generate random codes that we can now even just e-prescribe appropriate narcotics yeah. if they're needed. So if a person's yeah. on Sunday needs to pick up yeah. a additional 10 tablets from their CVS, that doesn't become, for a while, they, and actually during this study, they had to physically traipse down to meet one of us in person and, and, and we had to hand over a paper prescription for them yeah. to get pain meds. And that, as far as I can tell, that still occurs in a lot of places. Yes, so I think, so right. I think that in, in defense of what people's prescribing habits are, not that it isn't room for improvement, I mean, it, it is a problem if someone has surgery on Monday and over the weekend runs out of pain meds and you don't have an easy mechanism. I think e-prescribing with two-factor, or I don't know, I think it's probably three factors now. I can't count how many times I log in and what kind of codes are put in, but it can happen. So I think that that, along with a better understanding like this, will help us know that maybe if most people need five, what do you what would we prescribe? Six, ten, yeah, right? But maybe right. you're yeah, right. Not 20, it's interesting. Not 20 I or 30. my colleagues have convinced me, and I've had a good early experience with it. I'm using a lot more scheduled acetaminophen, you know, three times a day, with a 
non-acetaminophen, something, a narcotic that does not contain acetaminophen, because the last thing I want them to do is, is to take too much acetaminophen and cause the problems associated with that. But a narcotic that does not have acetaminophen as a breakthrough, and I've noticed that the amount of opioids and narcotics that I'm prescribing has dropped particularly in the last year, dramatically, I would say, dramatically. I used to be a, you know, you're getting 40 of these, either Percocet, which would be oxycodone and Tylenol, or hydroconone and, and Tylenol. Right. You're getting 30 or 40 of those, and that was just the routine. Don't want you to run out, yada, yada, yada. But the research has shown that patients are using five of those on average, and what's happening to the other 25 or 35 of those tablets. And right. I think that that is, has really helped to generate what we now call the opioid crisis. And I think that it goes back to something we all know from maybe back when we were in medical schools, that opioids work differently in different people. And often it doesn't. Here's the problem. We don't really yet have a great way to control pain. Yeah. Opioids don't turn it off. If you're really hurting, they somehow, I don't know what the psychological terms are. Yeah, they, they help you make it through. They modulate it, right? Yeah. And so that's another reason that we felt that even though, and this is one of our criticisms of the papers, that we didn't really monitor, although you could, monitor pain pill use and whether people were on pain pills or not during this time course because I felt like those are good questions to ask, but bottom line is if you're having a lot of pain and you're taking opioids, you're not going to score to zero to four. <laughs> right. You're still in pain. You're just kind of, yeah. uh, you know, I don't know what the term is. You're in a, in a slightly dreamy state with it. So yeah. Um, yeah. so, so we, we don't have that problem cracked, and, and opioids, you know, still play a role and probably always will, but, but th- we don't have a great great solution for pain. Yeah. Uh, before we get too far along, I think we're getting close to the end, perhaps. I, yeah. I also found it interesting about our, our, our question about uh, timing of return to work. Yes. And that's another question that I was trying to address because people ask me, I'm going to have this surgery. Yeah. When will I be able to go back to work? And there was only one other study, I think, from Great Britain 20 years ago where they found that they told everyone they would need two weeks off, and when they studied them, they had taken two weeks off. We tell people they might need a week off, and sure enough, most of our patients uh, or the average uh, person was going back to work at at seven days. So we struggled with how to define back to work given the fact some people work in a chair and a computer or have to climb on top of a construction building and balance versus, you know, whatever, and that some people may not work or may not consider what they do work. So I think that's a tricky question, but in general, I thought it was nice to be able to say that although it may be influenced by our instructions for what to expect, half of the people were back to work in a week. On the flip side, collecting this kind of data showed us that there were still some people who were not back to work at day 11, 12, 13, and 14. This needs to be explored further so we can really counsel patients about what they're in for before sinus surgery. Not that yeah. most of them are having a prolonged time off from work, but some right. people need more time off. And I especially think airline pilots, people in construction, people are handling dangerous machinery, physical exertion that's really significant. I mean, those people may need more time off before it's safe. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. No, it's a really good question that you're right. hasn't been looked into as carefully as it should, and I always hedge my bets on that, and I tell patients, well, probably about a week, but some people need more and some people need less, and I'm not sure that that's all that helpful, and I think you're right. Most of them follow doctor's orders and take a week off of work, probably whether they need it or not, so right. a lot more work to be done there. Well, David, your work is, I mean, I think it's fascinating. I think this represents really the future of how we'll communicate with our patients, with other healthcare providers, and I think it's going to integrate into our electronic health records and, as you've said, so exciting. Glad to see you continue this work and look forward to some of your follow-up studies as you gain more experience with this mobile platform. Well, Tim, it's really been fun talking about it. And before we say goodbye, I just want to recognize that this is a collaborative effort. I have some wonderful physicians I work with here, and our resident who led up this study, Dr. Conwalker, did a lot of work on it. Our fellow, Dr. Shen, I think we're all aware of our rhinology group here, Dr. Kern, Dr. Welch, Dr. Smith, and Dr. Tan. So it's not just my work, but we have a wonderful group. And these types of efforts take, I think, a group approach to really get a good average of patients and to really cover all the expertise that's required to uh, put a study like this together. So I want to thank you, Tim, very much for the chance to talk about it and certainly encourage everyone else out there to either look into how to do this for research or maybe just perhaps there are ways we will be able to communicate better with our patients. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, thank you, David, and take care of yourself, okay? All right. Thank you, Tim. Thank you for listening. Scope It Out is a co-production of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology and Wiley. All opinions in this podcast are those of Dr. Smith and his guests and do not necessarily reflect those of Wiley or of the sponsors.